From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball, another virtual edition. We're coming to you from Zoom as we have been from mid-March, but we've got the whole crew here. Audie Weiner, Shane Jensen, Eric Bradlow, this is Cade Massey, faculty all at the Wharton School, longtime collaborators here on Wharton Moneyball. We're going to go two hours today. We're back to the full-length show. We've got an open with a little bit on COVID-19, as we want to do. And we're going to close with a half-hour interview with Karim Kassam. He's an analyst with the Minnesota Twins. Before that, an analyst with the Pittsburgh Steelers. An interesting combination. Um, We'll pick up a little conversation with Karim to wrap things up. A lot of sports to talk about in between. We have some ground to cover, gentlemen. Um, Afternoon to you. I'm curious to get it right off the bat going. What in the world of coronavirus has your attention? I know I have a question or two. I'm curious what's caught your eye. Well, something that caught my eye, which was kind of interesting, was, you know, we've had lots of discussion. Adi's kind of led us in that discussion about the uncertainty, even the number of COVID deaths. Well, that might be the most known among deaths, hospitalizations, we could debate, uh, infections, uh, you know, exposure. There was an interesting study that came out, and I realized that if you have the equation total equals COVID plus other, and the total number of deaths due to other causes is pretty well known. In other words, the number of people that die of cancer, the number of people that die of heart attacks, the number of people that die of stroke-related things, if we make an assumption that that can be measured pretty precisely... And then the total number of deaths, forget the cause, can be measured pretty precisely. Then you subtract the two and you get the number of COVID deaths. And so a recent paper that was in JAMA came out and said it believes the number of deaths due to COVID is probably about one third higher than the number reported because it looked at the number, and Adi's used this term before, the number of excess deaths. And in some sense, how could you estimate that so well? And it's really just a simple equation. If you know two of the three things well, you can just subtract them and get the third. Yeah, I mean, that's a good strategy. Um, I looked at some of the, the, the annual death rates by week over, over time, and it's remarkably constant, except in flu season where it can be really, uh, where it varies a lot. Which we have not had. We have not right. had flu season yet interact with COVID. With COVID. Yeah. Um, and that- but but one, one oddity, which was, uh, which was inspired by our president's comment about sometimes 100,000. I don't know if you heard that. Yes. Um, um, so actually, it is sometimes 100,000. 1918, 1958, and 1968 were the three times, um, but nothing since. But last year was 20,000, um, which is shockingly low. Um, for a flu total um, deaths, it usually hovers between the, the, the ranges between are the numbers I've thirty to sixty is and pretty uniform, roughly in that range. So when you're dealing with the flu season, it becomes awkward. But in other times of the year, it's a pretty stable number by by week almost. It's really remarkable. So the initial numbers that I saw undercounted by a bit, um, but didn't seem to be that bad. bad. Uh, a third seems really high, in it, but I haven't read the paper. Um, so that, that's my only observation. Yeah, I was thinking about this actual phenomenon today while I was in line to get my flu shot. Mm-hmm. And I mean, the flu, I think, is the one thing that really can kind of throw off the calculation Eric was mentioning, because not only is it 
kind of itself an uncertain quantity that you're adding into that equation. But I would assume that flu deaths are, have, you know, kind of a correlation, a, a pretty strong association with COVID deaths. I mean, you would kind of think that the sort of same sort of like same vulnerable population, you know, the same populations that are vulnerable to COVID are also the ones that are most at risk for flu. So sort of deconvolving those, you know, kind of looking ahead to trying to kind of deconfound those or deconvolve those in a season, in, in an uncertain flu season, seems like a pretty difficult exercise. Why, why would deaths attributed to COVID be undercounted by 30%? If we're at 210 or whatever it is now, we're talking yeah. about 65, 70,000, 65, 70,000 deaths undercounted. Now, we're not saying that's for sure. We're saying that's a broad estimate using this technology, this approach. Why would here's, we be well, here's what it said in the article. So it gave a couple, you know, if you'd like examples. So one would be someone's not tested for COVID. Someone ends up going into the hospital and yeah. dying. We don't know that they've died of COVID unless they're tested after the fact, which is done in some cases, not others. A second could be someone, um, it's the categorization of death. So someone dies of COVID-related heart attack. Well, did they die of a heart attack or did they die of COVID? And so part of it could be just a legitimate dispute about the cause of death and what to attribute it to. So those were the two things. One was measurement and the other was there are deaths that have multiple causes. And, you know, it's hard to disentangle necessarily those two. Uh, I'll just respond with, I did a fairly, um, not back of the envelope, a little bit more than back of the envelope because I went actually went to the CDC and researched it. But I would probably about uh, a month old, my analysis now. But it, the, this, the actual excess deaths at the time I looked was about um, was, was, was not too far behind the, the actual COVID official numbers. It was within about 10 or 15 percent. That's why one third seems really, really off okay. to me. Um, okay. And that's that kind of that, that kind of, you know, particular number I'm a little surprised about. Um, I have another, you know, two observations. One apropos what Shane had mentioned, which I had heard from a doctor friend that because the flu season was so um, so weak last year, paradoxically, leaving a lot of people who ordinary, ordinarily die of it alive right. to right. die of it this year, which was one of the reasons why the, oh. potentially explains why the death rate was so high in the nursing homes and in the, around in the, in the senior population. Do we know empirically, it's a great story on it. Do we know empirically if that's true? Is there like a negative correlation or if you, right. put, an auto, if you put an autoregressive right. model where you conditioned the right. last period, yeah. would there be, is that true? Well, there's obviously regression to the mean. Uh, the only question is, there is there excess regression to the mean? Right, and, we, right. and that's a good uh, question to pose and potentially get a quick answer to. But I'll throw out one other form of death, which we don't attribute to COVID because it isn't a COVID death, but is absolutely caused by the, 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 the pandemic, which right. is the mental health related illness that leads to death and uh, um we just did a funeral of, a, of an old senior person who essentially died because of, I have to say loneliness, but it was officially, you know, bed sores arisen from not moving. Right. And there, and more generally, people who don't seek treatment because they're scared to go to the hospital, exactly. or people who receive lesser treatment because resources are allocated. Otherwise, there are, there are, that's a whole category of kind of undercounted. Gentlemen, where do you think we're going right now? Because the reports are not good. It's mid-October, and they're not good around the country. Um, they're also, you know, even immunization news out of Johnson & Johnson was discouraging yesterday. They halted one of their trials. 
I'm getting. I literally hold this, these are anecdotal. Pause is technically the term. Yeah, it I'm sounds sorry. more temporary if you say paused. And it's also very it common. Is, Let's be quite honest. These things happen. No, I think paused is the better term yeah. because these things do kind of, they they do pause these trials like that. It's a rel, relatively regular occurrence to do that. So, there, but there's I I I kind of want to go back to the way we were talking about this in March and just get a sense of where people are. Like, how many more deaths do you think the U.S. is going to see? And when are we, we four, for example, able to have breakfast together before our show in person? Yeah. When does that happen? Yeah. And how many total deaths has the country had when that does happen? All right, I'll just throw out one number. We threw oh, out a number. Before you do it, but before you do it yeah. everyone come up with a number. Think well, about it. Well, well do you know, we need a date. I think how we need a date. For what date? By what date? Date and the number. This is the two things that we need to know. What date are we having breakfast together? The first day we can and we feel comfortable. We're all together at a table inside, no mask. When does that happen? Okay, I got a date. And, a and then how many deaths, how many COVID deaths officially reported? By that date. I've got both. I've got a number. Okay, I'm ready too. Shane, you ready? Uh, are we talking American deaths or? Yes, American, American, deaths. American deaths. American deaths. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all right. I've got a, I've got a number too. Adi. Okay, so my date is uh, is um, approximately a, a, essentially about a year from now. Is we yeah. will not have breakfast and together yeah. indoors without masks and not not worried because yeah. we obviously can have indoor breakfast without masks. And what's your worry number? right now? <laughs> and what's your number by that date? Uh, my number is three hundred thousand. Yeah. Okay. I, I'm the next. My date was going to be September first, but I'm happy to say a year from now. It's not okay. that much different. And my number was given. We've you don't you don't mean three hundred thousand additional. You mean three hundred thousand in total, total, not no. additional. So we're already almost to two hundred and twenty thousand. So I think that number is way under. Um, I, my number was four hundred thousand. Yeah. Good diversity of opinion. Excellent. Yeah, but we had a similar date, but we yeah. had a number. Yeah. And interestingly enough, I'm going to come in with an earlier date. I think uh, June first, twenty twenty one. Oh, diversity um, of time. <laughs> diversity of but I'm going to come in kind of in the middle. I, I, I my, I, I, three hundred fifty thousand is I think what I think. Mm-hmm. I think it is going to be a little bit. You know, I the death rate is much lower even during these like more recent spikes. Oh, wait, but I, I think we'll get up to three hundred. I think our numbers are the same. If if you believe three hundred fifty thousand deaths by June one, I'll go with oh, that's yeah, that, deaths yeah. by September one. That's right. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so fellas, I'm at I'm at I'm at October first, which is slightly earlier than Adi between Adi and Eric, and I'm at mm-hmm. four hundred. So I'm with Eric. So I'm broadly, we three are broadly at the same, but at slightly higher numbers. So I'm but you know, by the way, the, the IHME, which, you know, was one of the early forecasts, they, uh, Adi, I'm just pointing, I, I, just, well, I haven't stated anything yet. I just say that they were one of the <laughs> early forecasts at the, that, lots at the of name. People, <laughs> that lots of people put credibility on. Mm-hmm. They have by February, somewhere in the neighborhood of 350,000 deaths by February. Well, it, but- Let's just point out that I don't know when when on our show we discussed this exact forecast made, I think about uh, two months ago, they forecasted 300,000 by December 1st. And on the show, I said, I think that that there that's a that is a plausible but high number. Well, um, let's think about it. So, yeah, that would be extreme. I mean, that would mean six weeks, thousand deaths a day. But for the next 40 days or 45 days, that it. would be extraordinarily high for that to happen. But mm-hmm. so I, what I what I fear, guys, is that we are just kind of muddling our way through this without knowing where we're going. And we all just keep on thinking it's about to end. And six months from now, we're not going to be a lot different state than we are now after having gone through a brutal winter. I worry that the worst case here is is worse. It's 
the tail is bigger and worse than we think it is. Well, this is also, I think, uh, Kate, related to your point, to me, like when we're going to get together number of deaths, it's also a compliance issue. And we've talked about this. So first of all, it's compliance and math issue. First, how effective is this vaccine going to be if there is one? Because let me just say, if there's no vaccine, I'm not having breakfast with you on September the 1st. So, uh, or, or there could be a vaccine or there could be extremely high quality rapid testing where we could all get tested just before we meet each other for breakfast. We all come with our phones from 10 feet apart. Shane can see that my phone says I don't have it. His says his and his it's 99% accurate. And so I believe you. And not only not, not only that you don't have it, that you're not contagious, which might be something entirely different than the two. But that's, that's to me. And then it's how many people are going to take the vaccine. And so that's all part of the math that, that guides us. I, I, yeah. I agree. And, and I, I'm concerned about that, but that's kind of the last stage. I'm, I'm increasingly concerned about the next stage, which is pre-immunization while we make it through the winter. And while people are pent up, we're getting into cold weather and they're, they're kind of done with the regulations. I mean, I'm, this is anecdotal, but the anecdotes are brutal. My, I have family, my wife's family is in Lubbock. They came in last weekend. They said when they left town on Friday, they went by one of the popular bars just driving out of town, and it was bumping, like door-to-door door door full of people, everything just going, like full-on bar. And now the report is in Lubbock alone, there's 166 people with COVID in the hospital in Lubbock, Texas. And, I mean, this is what's, I, you know, Texas may be on one end of this thing, but they're not that unique. There's lots of places. And if we've got we've, – as yeah. people talked about, there's just the, the base level out there right now is way too low to be as lax as we're being. It's like the fire is not down and you just throw a little more fuel on it. And it's going to be I think it's going to be really I'm, I worry yeah. that it's going to be really ugly. For can, I, can I I think I think you're absolutely right, too. Um, and uh, because we see we see this in, 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 in you saw this in Israel where it went from nothing, nearly nothing. And this exploded. And the, the problem is, is that, that what you're describing in Lubbock is frightening. Because that is the textbook example of what not to do. Mm-hmm. Be indoors, ball to all people in a bar. Um, and it's funny because I, I think there's been a lot of research and, and there's been interesting research looking at, looking at natural looking experiments that lockdowns are not necessary, that smart distancing is what's needed. And that we only locked down because we're too stupid to be smart in our distancing. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and and again, we, we, we I mean, obviously, Texas, we, we blame places like Texas or Florida to this. But just to echo kind of it, it it's this is a worldwide kind of stupidity right. in the sense that I mean, I, I have collaborators I talked to in Paris and they're talk they're talking about um, they're talking about potentially locking down or shutting down in Paris again because people just are not refusing anymore to, to social distancing. All right. Let's let's talk on a little bit different front. We're three weeks from election day, exactly three weeks from today. We're recording on Tuesday afternoon. This will be posted on Wednesday. And we don't do a lot of election talk around here, but, you know, there's a lot of forecasting. And we're, if anything, fellas, we're about forecasting. And so I caught, I caught 538's podcast last week. And every now and then they do a version called Model Talk. Y'all would get a kick out of this. Oh, do you get a kick? Model Talk is what they talk it. They, what they call it. It's delightful. And it's exactly what you want. They go in and, and really break down in detail where they're, how their forecasts are built and what they're saying. So here's my question for you. They, they right now show Biden with something like an 85% chance of winning the election. 87% as of this morning. Okay, 87 today. As of Friday, it was 85. And this thing, 
you know, they, they, they say, you know, if the election was today, it would probably be more like 95%. So they, they're allowing for things to kind of regress back between now and the election. So they had a question, a mailbag question from a listener, and it was, is there a minimum number, a minimum probability on a, on a Trump win? And is it, they're asking, is it in the model somehow? Is it baked in in some way? And Nate Silver's answer was no. And he gave a reason for it. He said, we're basically conservative. All our, you know, we've been thoughtful about this, but there was no minimum. And that struck me as interesting. And I, and I wanted to bring that question to you guys and how you think about it. The, the, do you understand the question? If you, you got a model that aggregates polls and it's telling you 85, 87, whatever it's telling you on, on one side winning, is would you ever cap it out in some way? Would you ever say, you know, whatever it says, I'm not going above this percentage well, for some reason. Let me I just, mean, let me just clarify from one thing from the 538 site. It actually, if, because it says it directly on the site, how they come up with an overall estimate. It's, it's actually not 100% poll-based. I think the number I saw was something like 77%, 23%. Now, where they get these weights from, I don't know. But 23%, Eric, some, they have, crack, some they have different versions. And they, so one version includes some structural considerations like the economy. And then there's another version that includes some subjective expert opinions. So they do have more than just the polls. That's no, but my only point was, and I know Shane wanted to jump in, my only point was that 23, 25% may provide a minimum because of economic conditions, historical regression to the mean effects, okay. et cetera, that provide that base. That's all I wanted to point out. Yeah, and I'll, all I wanted to point out is I think even if there is not like an explicit kind of floor on his probability, uh, on, on one of the candidates' probability of winning, there's a kind of an implicit floor in the sense that, I mean, you know, they're doing simulation based on polling data and, and the inherent uncertainty with all right. the stuff that they're you know, basing their simulations on, I think does, I mean, I, I'm not sure you'd be able to kind of calculate they, that very easily, but I think there is kind of an implicit floor on the probability of any candidate winning the election or an implicit floor on ca- Trump's probability of winning the election. Let me just uh, throw in a couple of, you know, of thoughts about this. You have to make it really clear that this is, when we talk about probability here, we're not talking about the same probability as, uh, as uh, stealing second or, or getting a, a pair of aces in a poker hand, this is, this is, which is a calculable external externality that one can actually write down. This is model based. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Yeah. quick aside. Those aren't the same kinds of probabilities. That's extraordinary that you would call stealing second base the same as getting pocket aces. Uh, no, you're right. They're not the same. But, but in the sense that they're, they're knowable in a, in, a, in a completely different set of circumstances. Okay. Right? Okay. Um, there's data that we can bring to really put a, and, and the other thing is, is that um, we understand full well the, the mechanics of stealing a base. And that's why I used it as an example. Yeah. The, when Nate Silver comes up with a probability model, that is in, in, with, with a large portion of that, as much as they do sampling and they much as they write down binomials and normals and aggregates, they are making subject, highly subjective, untestable assumptions that they need to use in order to make the machinery work. So, and, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring this up because of the shit you two guys gave me four years ago when I tried to say that, this, that, that Hillary Clinton was not a sure thing to win this election. And, I'm, and, um, and, and, and the reason why I said that was that these models are not the kind of things for which we really fully understand. And there's a huge kind of set of decisions. I mean, and they are subjective that one has to make to make them actually put out a number at the end. 
Yeah. So let me just remind everybody, uh, first of all, your recollection in this case, <laughs> I'll say in this case is not incorrect, <laughs> but I will say the following. You remember our post-mortem on the election from 2016 was that there was this, in some sense, correlated set of errors. Matter of fact, we even talked about as the election night in 2016 went on, when we saw the result in Florida, then we saw the result in Ohio, which were two of the earlier states that were called. Mm -hmm. We all as statisticians started to say, no, wait a second, uh, why were the polls saying X and the results are X plus five, X plus four? And we started to notice that there was a set of correlated errors in the results. Mm -hmm. The thing that's to me different this time, a couple things. One is, if you look at the, this, and people always, matter of fact, I remember long, long time ago when I was working with someone, I think many of you know well, how stern on a bunch of problems. And we, in fact, we were working on polling data. He says the things that people don't talk about enough is the variance in the polls. People talk about the difference between time A and time B, but they don't talk about the variability. The thing that's very different this time is that the polls have been extraordinarily stable, meaning not just across polls, but over time. In other words, Biden's lead, both nationally and within states, has been, in other words, there aren't as many undecided voters. That's number one. And number two, he's above 50% in every state, but one or two, at least according to 538. Now that's very different than leading 45% to 41% with 14% still undecided. undecided, even if the Delta is the same. So my reaction, of course, to, to this is that I think that the last five years at minimum, maybe longer, has make, made, it, made the idea that the, the, the necessary component of polling um, difficult, which is probability samples. We need probability samples to do pro polling and do analysis. And to our listeners, what a probability sample is, is you use randomness, actual external randomness to figure out who joins your poll. Because of the cellular phones, the internet, the diversity of getting difficulty of getting people, it's these new, the new way of doing polling just lacks reliability. Now I'll just say, I mean, think that's something that gives me extra sort of uncertainty, and I don't know exactly again how they put this into their models if they do anything. Adi, you kind of talked about how stolen bases, in part, we have a kind of a good understanding of that probability because we understand mechanistically what goes mm -hmm. into this. But mechanistically, what goes into this general election is also turnout and whether or not the votes actually get counted and all these kind of things that like, you know, obviously, I think we've sort of there's been extra uncertainty cast on that those mechanistic parts of the process over the last few months, which has contributed to my own kind of like why I may be pulling the sort of like taking that 86% or 87% that 538 has and, and pulling it more towards 50. Yeah, so I, I want to come back to that because that's kind of the, that was the question. And I love Adi reminding us of what we were talking about four years ago, because Adi said, regress it, regress it toward the mean. And that's a better version than, is there some limit? because um, regressing is going to build in some limits because there's a lot outside the model. And Nate Silver acknowledges this about 538's models. He doesn't, he can't explicitly model the possibility that voter suppression will be asymmetric mm -hmm. or that some really weird thing happens in the next three weeks that really skews things. That's outside the model. But here's my point. If you know there's some important stuff, at least, there's some, at least potentially important stuff outside the model, Shouldn't you never get too sure if you know for a fact that there's some big stuff outside the model that your model's not accounting yes. for? Yes. Doesn't that give you a limit for how? <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Yes. Just right. And so Adi's telling us regress. And so yeah, now yeah. let's now let's just like he told us four years ago, 
how much should we be regressing? If, if Nate Silver's current models are saying 87% and you want to be prudent because you recognize your stuff outside the model, what do you think, ballpark, what do you think he should be regressing to? I, I'll just give an opinion there, um, and then I'll comment later on probabilistic sampling and stuff. I'd say four to one. I would say if it's 87.13 right now, if that's what they're reporting, it's probably at worst 75.25 I would regress to, but probably 80.20. That's just for me. Yeah. I mean, I'm, a, I'm a little bit more uncertain about voters, or, or I've, you know, I've, I have more fear of things like massive voter suppression, et cetera. Um, so I'm going to, I'd regress down to like, you know, 66, 34 or something like that. All right. So I'm actually in the, in the neighborhood of, of Shane, um, but maybe slightly for different reasons. Um, I think that there might be tremendous difficulty in counting because of the mail ballots going on. I think that because of COVID, there's going to be lines. Uh, I've, I've been clued into the incredible distinctions between our suburban voting system and the city's uh, voting systems, whereby I'm used to voting with no lines, with plenty of staff, with wide open spaces, <laughs> where the ability to know, know where my polling system, my polling place is, is easy. But in much of the urban areas, you might not even know where to vote. Right. come day of the election. And with so, COVID, it's going to make it difficult. And this is this might really affect turnout. I still think that there's a secret. There's a, a secret. I, I hate to use the word secret, but there's a, a component of people who are not telling the, the poll, either not accessible to the pollsters or not telling the truth sure, to the pollsters. Could be right. And, we, and that's another, that's an unknown about the model. So, so I'm two to one. I, one of the things I love about Shane's 66% is that that happens to approximate the betting markets right now. Mm-hmm. Yes, it does. If you want to, and if you want to explain the discrepancy between very sophisticated modelers like Nate Silver's and the betting markets, I think a great way to explain that discrepancy is the kinds of things we've been talking about, which is all the considerations outside the model, all of which call for regressing the model's forecast. And I think the market does at least a, a reasonable job of doing that. And anyway, I think it's an interesting thing to keep in mind as we hear and we'll increasingly hear about it over the next three weeks, what the poll numbers look like and what the forecasts look like. Gentlemen, that has been the first quarter of Wharton Moneyball. Happily, we still have three quarters to go, including lots of sports to talk about. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, virtual edition coming to you from Zoom, the whole crew. This is Cade Massey hosting with my faculty colleagues, good friends, longtime Wharton Moneyball collaborators, Audie Weiner, Shane Jensen, Eric Bradlow, rolling into the second quarter, talked COVID and some politics for the first time in a long time in the first quarter. But my gosh, fellas, we've got some sports to talk about. A few things have happened since our last gathering. What in the world of sports has caught your eye in the last week? Well, I just want to say two words that I'm really mad about, which is Mike Ford. Um, and if you don't know what I'm talking about, is the is the decision to send him up to pinch hit um, for the Yankees' uh, defensive catcher. And I thought it was a bad choice, and uh, I'm still upset about it. And um, anyway, I'm upset when, about the when, Yankees okay, losing, but that's point, all I have to say, and that's that. <laughs> at what point did this happen? This was in the eighth inning. I believe it was the eighth inning uh, on of the, the final game against the Rays, and the game was tied. Um and I just don't think he's a particularly good hitter when they had other hitters on the bench that they should have been using. Okay, so you're talking about the sad story of the Yankees getting knocked out by yes, the I Rays am. in the ALDS. Um, it was a dramatic punch out. Um, we had an eighth inning, bottom of the eighth inning, home run mm-hmm. off of Chapman, no less. Yep. Guys, I Who was in early, on. replacing Britain. Um, yeah, so are you more, are you more angry? seconds before that home run. It was one of the best timed 
remote control flips I've had in a while. But I felt sorry for y'all because I knew that was pretty deflating. Chapman, I mean, he's done that before, right? Yes. Nope. <laughs> so are you more are you more angry about kind of like I guess the bench like uh, hitting management or or because I mean I, I felt like the a lot of the pitching late inning pitching management was was bad. Odd, I, didn't, I didn't like I didn't like his management of the bullpen. I don't know what what Eric thinks. I also didn't like having a guy who's basically been not used at all. Um, you know, they do these matchup things that are based on very small samples, and 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 that and and managers like love them, um, and mostly because in baseball, making an out is the is the modal event by far. And so the downside of your movement not paying off generally has much less repercussion than the upside does when you do something uh, that turns out well, if you're, if you're more or less following my, my argument. Mm-hmm. A management, managers de- tend not to get hurt, I think, by making an odd move because outs are common, right? So if the yeah. result is poor, I mean, what are you going to do? I mean, outs, I mean, outs, come on, it's baseball. I think more about the... You know, when I was watching the Yankee game and I saw the, the at-bat, let's talk about the entire at-bat. I believe the person that hit the home run off Chapman hit it maybe on the 10th or 11th pitch yes. Chapman had thrown to him. 10th and pitch, so yeah. What, what bothered me was that the Yankees organization, both Chapman and the bench, wasn't thinking about the counterfactual. And here's what I mean. You, even though the pitch was 100 miles an hour, I understand maybe he missed his location. It was right down the middle of the plate. Mm-hmm. Now, here's the thing. Suppose you – it's obviously a 3-2 count with 10 pitches. Suppose you – it didn't have to be, but it was. <laughs> Suppose you walk the guy. Here's the thing. They're not a $200 million team. The batter after him is much worse than him. Mm-hmm. And much worse than him also even, I understand, small samples against Chapman. And so this idea that you shouldn't be thinking, number one, what's someone's batting average on the 10th pitch mm-hmm. of an at-bat as opposed to the third? You haven't fooled them. You haven't, matter of fact, there were no swings and misses in that at-bat. It's not like there was not one ball the guy swung and missed. So my view is I was more angry after the fact, not watching. While I was watching, I was just like, damn, he hit a home run off Chapman on a 100-mile-an-hour pitch. But the <laughs> counterfactual of, like – Throw it out of the zone. Throw that curveball or slider you have out of the zone. If he swings, great. If not, I've got a much greater chance on the next guy on the first pitch as opposed to this guy on the 11th pitch. Yeah, yeah. that's interesting. All also, right. well, also there were two outs, I think. Was that correct? There I mean, were two outs. There were two outs. And what I think that people don't quite realize is the damage of a walk with two out is essentially inconsequential. When there's no outs, a walk is horrible. Um, but be- because, of the run ex- because of the run expectancy... And he absolutely should have been not afraid to walk him. A 3-2 pit count is very bad for the pitcher. Um, and, and that decision to kind of challenge him in the, at, at the moment, is that, is that almost always on the p- pitcher-catcher combo, or is the manager kind of actually... It's a pitcher-catcher combo, yeah. I think. So I mean, the manager yeah. can technically weigh in on that, right? The yeah. catcher is sure. looking at the... Ba- yeah, yeah. One, one of the ways to characterize what you're saying reminds me of, of golf, especially among amateurs in golf we often get the, the loss function wrong. You know, mm-hmm. like you, you, you always play at the pin regardless of the asymmetry of the hazard left and right. And what you're saying is like the loss function, they didn't keep that in mind here, that they could nibble at the corners here, risk walking the guy, relatively low downside. But that's counter to the usual strategy. You have to have an adaptive contingent strategy, and that's hard to do. Super, super interesting. The other thing I heard you say, Adi, that I want to just cl- clarify, I think you said that you think that analytics can pull people too far down this matchup, which I'm going to take to be in tension with base rates. Are you suggesting that they might bat a guy 
who they believe has, maybe even the numbers show, he has a good matchup probability with that particular pitcher, even if he's a lesser base rate guy. And you're concerned that you think that matchup probability is based on a small sample and they ought to keep it clean and just go with base rates. And you're saying that managers are susceptible to that because they like this matchup strategy kind of thing. Is this, am I understanding your story right? And also because baseball, baseball managers, unlike say football coaches, they really have far fewer decisions in their playbook. There are very few times that they get to actually make decisions that matter in baseball um, and particularly in the midst of a game and a decision to pinch hit or substitute for a pitcher are the major. And if, if I will say, dare say the only things that a manager does doing, <laughs> and they want to prove right. their value. The only thing I was going to comment on about Adi's small sample comment is look, Adi, I think you would agree with the following. The problem is if the manager's looking down at his piece of paper and says Ford batting 500, well, that's not the thing. He could be one for two or two for four. Yeah. You, mm-hmm. if, if it was a Bayesian shrunken well, estimate, you'd yeah. be okay I'd be with perfectly that. happy. Like, okay, look, the guy's a 230 hitter. He's mm-hmm. two for four against this guy. All right, I'll give him 242, whatever. <laughs> that you'd be okay yeah, with. Totally. It's the maximum likelihood two yeah. for four that's bothering you. And I, since we're talking about catchers for the Yankees, I, I, I actually legitimately want to kind of hear what your guys' takes on on what the Yankees should do with Gary Sanchez. Because that is not a small sample size issue. He's certainly very high variance, it seems, throughout his career. Do you kind of feel like he is somebody that you, they, they should continue with in the future? Or, is he, or are you kind of done with him? Eric, you want to take it first? I, I think, just quickly, um, I don't think he can field, and I don't think he can hit well enough. I think the Yankees have to move on from Gary Sanchez. I concur. All right. All right, there you go, Shane. Guys, what about uh, the rest of the – there have been some games since. We have some championship series going on. The Dodgers are not out of the blocks. The Braves took them in game one. And perhaps as interesting, the Rays are up 2-0 on the Astros. So it's hard not to get on the the Rays bandwagon, right, because they're such analyst darlings. But that's a nice opening. And did you see the catch, Margo's catch last night out there in right field? It's fun. Believable. You hear these great catches, and you they all kind of look the same. They're great, but they look the same. This one doesn't look the same. This well, was extraordinary. On, let me comment both first about the Dodgers and then about the catch. The other thing you forgot to mention about the Dodgers is um, Kershaw's back's yeah. hurting him, so yeah. he can't pitch tonight. So all of a sudden they're bringing in a rookie to pitch. All of a sudden the world champ, the supposed soon-to-be world champion, coronated world champion Dodgers may be down to love. And so, by the way, how much were people bringing in? You talk about regression. Here's another factor, injuries. How many people were saying, oh, the Dodgers are 90% to make the World Series? Okay, well, you know, now that his back is hurt and they're down one nothing, how how are you feeling about that 90%? The second thing is, the the thing about the catch last night also, it wasn't great in the following sense. If you remove the fact that the railing and him tumbling over is there – it's a fairly routine, not routine, but I mean, he would have oh, gotten sure. for the ball. Sure. So the thing that makes it great is because he had to basically dive over the over the railing and then flipped over and held on to the ball. So it was yeah. it wasn't great in the sense of wow, I can't believe he got to that ball. That's right. That's well, all. I but meant. but then he, the, the other side of the railing was like an eight foot drop or something. I mean, he, he needed a stuntman to pull that thing off. He's lucky he didn't get hurt. Let me ask you a question. I don't even know the answer to this. Maybe Adi or Shane knows it. Obviously, football, we can debate the rule. You have to have the ball all the way to the ground. If he catches the ball, 
it's caught. The umpire can, let's imagine for the moment, the umpire could see it. Last night he couldn't, but let's say he could see that he caught it. He falls to the ground and the ball drops out. Is that a catch? Well, yeah, it, I think so. It is a catch, but the umpires could make a mistake. I said, yeah. if the umpire yeah. saw yeah, it's a catch. catch, it it's is a catch. catch. Yeah. It's a catch. So it's not like football in that way. That's interesting. Because he got up holding the ball. And like, I, you only have to basically momentarily or like, you know, for some some kind of like, you know, I don't know. There's not a baseball move equivalent of the football move in making a catch in football. But like you, if you, as long as you hold it for a, you know, a little bit of time, you can then drop. And it All still right, counts guys, as a catch. Let's talk about a championship. Another championship has been won this fall. We're clicking there it through is. now. Yep. We saw hockey won, and now the NBA did it. So there's two big stories here. At least one was LeBron getting his fourth championship. Another was the NBA pulling this thing off without a single positive case. Well, well LeBron, think, right? Yeah. Anyone who underestimated him was a fool, I suppose. But is that resulting? Um. <laughs> yeah, and I, I, you know, the, what I kind of, what I felt like texting you guys, I'm kind of glad I didn't because I looked like an idiot. Is like, you know, I, I was going to text you like, how many players, is he like the first player to basically lead a team to a champ, like three different teams to a championship? And he's certainly not the, you know, there have been multiple players that have won championships across three different teams. But he, he's really kind of, the, I think, the only one that has really led three different yeah. teams to a championship. You know, the Robert Ories of the world yeah. were never kind of the leaders of those teams. So, you know, when you kind of start talking about his legacy as one of the greatest basketball players of all time, how, how does that kind of factor in the fact that he was able to lead three different themes now to a championship? I, I completely agree with you. Um, you could argue, by the way, remember, except for Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen, those were the only two players on both of the three-peats with two years in between. So you could argue in some sense Jordan and Pippen led a totally yeah. different team, even though it was the Chicago Bulls both times. Um, but I thought the amazing part of that game was – I may have the number wrong. I think Miami had like 36 points at the half. I mean, the defense of that team, they were up by 30 points, but not just because they had 70, but the other team only had 40. And let me just say – it wasn't just LeBron, although, yes, LeBron's a very good defensive player. Anthony Davis is the def should be the defensive player of the year. They've got other guys who know, look, all my job is is to play defense. I'm not worried about scoring. LeBron and AD are going to score us plenty of points. And then the third thing I noticed in the game, I have to admit, the whole game I was smiling. No matter what you want to say, playoff Rondo showed up in game six. Because, as a matter of fact, lots of the experts, quote-unquote experts, give Rajon Rondo the credit for the Lakers winning that game. Because not only because of his scoring in the game, but because of his aggression to the hoop, his setting players up. I mean, Rondo was amazing in that game six. So I, I have a question I'll, I'll turn to you all, is that some of the criticism of LeBron has been is that when he goes from team to team, he assembles an all-star team. Well, I don't feel that's true, right? I mean, many teams assemble all-star teams. We try to see the Sixers try to do it in its own way, and, and they're not successful. So what, what, what's, what's, the, what's the weakness in this argument? Well, I think you have a couple different teams. The Miami Heat had Dwayne Wade, who already had a title, remember, with Shaq, and Chris Bosh. So those are three Hall of Fame players. And many people consider Dwayne Wade one of the best two guards who ever played. Chris Bosh, we could debate on how great he is, but certainly a very, 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 very good player. Um, the Cleveland Cavaliers team, he had Kyrie Irving. Well, you know, Irving all of a sudden doesn't – I mean, he was great when he played with LeBron. But you yeah. take LeBron away, and all of a sudden, maybe he's not as great as we all thought he was. 
And then you look at this team. And, and again, you guys have told me, you guys have ingrained this into my brain for the last six and a half years. What about the six times he made the finals yeah. and lost with teams that like, you can't name half the yeah. players on those teams. I just, yeah. I, I totally think the 10 championships is at least as impressive as the, the, the six non wins as, as the four wins. I mean, yeah. it's just incredible what he did there. And just the sheer number he's missed the championship once. Is it one season? And he was hurt. He was that, injured last year. That's it. That it's was it. If he hadn't been injured, by the way, I mean, they were in the fourth in the West and maybe he didn't have enough talent last year, but I don't know. I'll, I'll go by the Shane Jensen rule. Always trust LeBron. Maybe he would have yeah. made it ten straight years. Look, Eleven. Let me, who knows? Let me ask. Let me ask y'all a quick question. And and I'm, if if you wanted to understand his impact on a game, what are the different channels by which he impacts the game? What are the different channels that a great player like LeBron or or Michael Jordan? There may be different channels, but if you if you really had all the data to model it, and if you brought in the complexity guys to talk about two way interactions, three way interactions, to the extent that you believe that. What are the ways that LeBron James, other than just being an individually great player, elevates his teammates? By what channels? Just unpack a little bit for me. I, what I, would, I, would love, I would love to look at the amount of space that is created on the floor by people, by, by, by people going after LeBron, like by okay. him drawing people away from okay. his teammates, essentially. I think that's, so that's, a, you know, that's a very kind of indirect impact that he yep. has on the sport. Yep. I don't think I think that's a great point, Shane. Actually, um, I just was reading this morning a study that was comparing Jordan and LeBron about the amount of space they created for other players. Mm-hmm. And so I think the way it came out, and in fact, they did an analysis of this. If one wants to say who is the better one-on-one scorer, there's not even a comparison. Jordan was the better scorer. I don't think anybody doubts that. But this actually, it actually looked at wins created both in the playoffs and in the finals. And actually, interestingly, this may not surprise you, Jordan had a slightly higher peak in two of his years, but LeBron had the next six best years. So it's like mm-hmm. LeBron has been just great for 10, 12 consecutive years. And Jordan wasn't as great for that long a period of time. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I want, I want, I'd like to, to analogize him to Mike Trout, who's generally thought of as the best baseball player today and never brings his team to the playoffs. Obviously, that's because of baseball. It's divided by nine, and there's no way to com- – the comparison is not possible. But why doesn't well, – it's, it's more than just nine versus five. They, there are the, – presumably, whatever channels exist, I'm trying to get you all to unpack them some because I'm curious – there are fewer channels in baseball than in basketball just because there's more independent play in baseball. Well, yes. I mean, but my question is, is for you guys, is why does, I mean, first of all, how many MVPs is LeBron won? And does he deserve one every year and not get one because it's just right. too tiring to give it to him every year? Yeah. <laughs> basically, 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 I, I think you summed won, it up the there. Way, I, I know okay. the number's four or five. He's won four or five uh, regular season MVPs. Uh-huh. Um, four finals MVPs now as well. Uh, yeah, I mean, he's the MVP every single year, in my view, at least for the last 10. He's been mm-hmm. the best player in the league. You say James Harden. I mean, some of the years they gave it to Steph Curry. Mm-hmm. I mean, come on. I mean, I'm not saying those aren't great all-time players, but you know, you're telling me the Golden State Warriors wouldn't have been better with LeBron on it than Curry? No, they would have been better with LeBron. Yeah. So I, I think it's it, this... Where are you going with Trout? 
because I want to say in baseball, there's just so much less scope for a player to elevate the play of his teammates than there is in basketball yes. or football. Yes. Where I was going was that, is that Trout uh, doesn't bring his team to the playoffs and, and we had wins a bunch. I mean, it's generally acknowledged every year to be the competitor for the, for the, um, for the MVP. Well, and I don't feel like Bonds is even in the conversation. The last let me ask years. you a question. Well, let me ask you a question. Do you guys all agree? You know, we always talk about the greatness. If we want to talk about over, you know, spillover in baseball, we've talked about one of the greatest players I've ever seen was Mariano Rivera. Could you make an argument that he had a great spillover because you knew if you had a lead, I mean, play backward induction. All right, so you know if you have a lead come the ninth inning, the game's over. Okay, that means you have to now manage the eighth inning differently, which means you have to manage the way you score differently, which means – okay. so to yeah. me, that's the one position in baseball, but especially Rivera because of how great he was, that you could make an argument – he had a huge spillover to the way the rest of the game was played. Yes. Not, not only that kind of direct spillover, but I think, you know, Audie, we, we, we kind of started this conversation talking about managerial decision-making, and I really liked Audie's framing, that hmm. the manager doesn't actually have that many actions that they can kind of do, and if anything, they, if anything, they often kind of overact because of that. Mario, some, having someone like Mario Rivera covers up a lot of that, right? Because he, he's right. A, kind of a, a yeah. certainty as far as decision-making goes. Yeah, done. Made life easy. But, you know, here's my, my, my other question is, I feel like in, in basketball and in, and in football, we really value a top player's performance in playoffs and, and finals and championships. And it goes to your record. It goes to who you are. It goes to your greatness. I feel like we don't do that enough in baseball. Um, and that we don't like, and if particularly we have Hall of Fame conversations, and that's some Eric and I's favorite topics. I feel like in baseball, your performance postseason is always subordinate to your, and obviously because of numbers of seasons, numbers of opportunities. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really just about the playoffs being so much smaller of a kind of part of, you know, I mean, I mean the playoffs are small and pretty random. But, but um, there's, so. there's other, this other element we're talking about, which means team play should be less of a baseball player's record than is team play in other sports. I think it, yes, it should of be the it most is. in basketball yeah. because it's one out of 12 or something. Yeah. Next I, though, I, I fully support this, Audie, in that it ends up with David Ortiz in the Hall of Fame. So I, I, agree. I agree with I agree. you. Well, sh- All right. We've got, another, we've got another Legends conversation to have because Rafa Nadal just tied – the, for the for the most number of majors, and again, this Adi, you want something that we're not talking Goats. about the number of wins. We're talking about the number of majors. So uh, he wins another French. Unbelievable! I think 102 is his record at Rolling. And 100 Grand. wins, two losses. So Eric, you're the resident tennis aficionado. What's your take on how this thing went down? Well, first of all, let me just say um, the first two sets against Nadal. I don't care if he's 70 years old. I've never seen him better. He's 33, by the way. He was ahead of Djokovic, six love, six, I'm going to repeat it again, six love, six two, and he hadn't broken a sweat. And it's not because Djokovic was playing poorly. Nadal, halfway through the third set, which he won seven, five, not as easily, had five unforced errors. I'm going to say it again. He's playing the number one player in the world, a man with 17 majors, and through two and a half sets, he had five unforced so hold errors. On, hold on. That sounds amazing. Give me a little more context. How many, what's the average number of unforced errors at that level of play? And another way to put it in context, how many swings of a racket had he made at that well, That's a good question. So what I know is that um, – I think at the time they said 152 points had been played and he had five unforced errors. Okay. And how, how long is a point? 
point is typically on average playing men's tennis, probably a thousand shots had been hit at that point in the but match by the average yeah, men's, uh, men's tennis. Well, on, on clay, on clay, on clay it's, it's probably seven points. Seven okay. points is about an average. Just to give you an idea for the match, I think he ended up with 12 or something unforced hours. Djokovic had 52. Um, there you go. Okay. That's one thing. But secondly, um, this is the way I view Nadal. He was great, by the way. And 20 means a lot. But I want to say one thing. You, you can do this, but if you take away the French, yeah, yeah. I just want to say yeah. this. I'm not just saying he's not great. <laughs> but if you take away the French, he's got the same number of majors as John McEnroe. If you take away the French, he's got less majors than Jimmy Connors. So I just want to comment that so many of his majors, I'm, in some point, not for the record books, but there has to be diminishing count in terms of how great he is. Now, what's more impressive to me is that he's got a 23-16 and 16 career record against Federer. He's got, a 20, he's got a losing record, by the way, against Djokovic. 27 wins, 29 losses, although he's 5-4 and four in majors now against Djokovic. Mm-hmm. But to me, it's more the head-to-head matchups is a stronger argument for me about the greatness of Nadal because I keep thinking if the French Open never existed, he's John McEnroe, he's Jimmy mm-hmm. Connors, he's not Federer, he's not even if you take away Federer's eight Wimbledons, he's near, he's number three all time. Djokovic is pretty evenly distributed between the other three majors. Djokovic has won a lot of Australians. To me, that's what diminishes Djokovic. The, the Australian just, I hate to say it, doesn't, doesn't count as much. <laughs> but regardless, that, that's where we are. Jo- mm-hmm. He's the king of clay. How about that? He's the greatest clay court player ever. And if you took those away, he's as great as John McEnroe and Jimmy Connors were, which is pretty damn great. That's, I mean, it's a little rough to take them all the way away because, I mean, those guys had a chance to play on clay as well. It, it, but but, I, but it's, a fair, it's a fair point. It connects to a conversation we had on poker back in the day with some of those guys, how the, the, the real poker players, they like to play other games as well. We only watch Texas Hold'em, but they like to be able to – they like to play other games, and they judge each other on their ability to play a range of games. And that diversity is a hallmark. The ability to play at a high level across a wide range of games – is a hallmark of the best players. Um, but the cheer dominance at one of the iconic tournaments in the history. Well, of not tennis. just that. You start to think to yourself, why? Like people say, who's going to win the most? It's obvious. Nadal. Like, I mean, what's, unless he gets injured, I don't see any reason to believe. And remember, Djokovic had not lost the entire season except the one time, which we all know about. He hit the ball in the throat of the person. He had an undefeated season and he got destroyed. What's to make you think Nadal's not going to win another four or five French Opens? What stops you, especially on clay, which is less taxing on the body in some ways? He could be 38 and winning the French. That, that's, that sounds right now, Eric, but you know, we've been having this conversation for a few years, and you weren't as sure in the past as you are now. So I wasn't as sure, but... He's outperformed, he's outperformed expectations from a couple of years ago. He has, but I will say... Federer has changed my view on those expectations because Federer was stuck at only 17 majors. And then his last three years, Federer's won three majors. And if he had converted one of two points against Djokovic, he would have won the Wimbledon last year. And so I don't see any reason why if Roger Federer won three majors past the age of 35, Rafa Nadal can't also. Okay, Eric, in 20 seconds, what's the deal with PGA and the bet MGM odds? Literally 20 seconds. Okay, I just literally saw it this morning. Um, while the match, while golf is going on, they're going to put up on the screen 
what are the live odds of each player winning the tournament and what's the live odds in their threesome that they're going to beat the other player and you can make all kinds of bets scores over under etc the pga is going to do this on national tv right on the screen <laughs> right at the time they're partnering wow. with at mgm yeah i want to know who's who's setting those lines because i'm a little skeptical that they're going to set them as sharp as they need to be set but that's super super interesting and good fun adds an element to the golf uh, telecast all right fellas that's been the first half of wharton Moneyball. we still have I have to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to the second half of Wharton Moneyball. We're back to our full strength, two-hour version. We're coming to you by Zoom, as we have been since March. This is Cade Massey hosting with the whole crew, Adi Weiner, Eric Bradlow, and Shane Jensen. Just done talking baseball basketball tennis and just a tad bit of golf we haven't talked about football yet guys and i have to tell you i had a a, epic saturday afternoon watching the horns go down in quadruple overtime that was an epic game i i'm I'm very happy i tuned in for the second half and overtime of the that game and that was insane it was it was so fun i'm not sure i'm happy i tuned in but live despite my philosophy otherwise I appreciated the notes of sympathy I received. It wasn't the it wasn't the, the peak of Longhorn football. I think Tom Herman's in trouble. It's a little surprising, but um, you know he's four seasons in. He changed his whole coordinators and some, some other coaches last year, and the team looks the same as it has looked. At some point, it's Tom's problem and not anybody else's. It's interesting. Interesting times in Austin on that front. Anything else around college? Interesting. Uh, interesting games. Anybody paying attention? We're still a little light. Our schedule is a little light. Uh, the football on the NFL side has been great fun and very eventful. So I think the one, the one uh, college game I spent some fair amount of time watching, if I'm correct, didn't Florida lose an unexpected game? A&M. Texas A&M beat them. Um, they, they're in Kyle Field, but they were not supposed to win. And Florida, Florida's defense got kind of pants in this thing. They, everyone knows the offense. They're impressed by the offense. Kyle Trask, one of the top-rated quarterbacks in the country. A&M hasn't won many big games since they moved to the SEC. They won a big one against Alabama when Johnny Manziel was there and not much else. They won like a seven-overtime ridiculous thing against LSU a couple years ago. But otherwise, it's been quiet, and they got it done against Florida on Saturday. Yeah, that was the one game I saw. And then the other one, I guess, a little surprise me. I mean, I obviously, I knew they'd be worse. But the fact that, you know, without Burrow, but LSU, I mean yeah. – they're getting beaten soundly, and, and they're not looking good at all. And, of course, that doesn't explain why their defense has given up 40 points. Last time I checked, Joe Burrow doesn't play defense. And so, you know, I, that's the one thing I noticed also that LSU seemed to have uh, fallen hard. Well, a couple of things there. They lost, you know, basically all their entire starters. They lost, you know, into the teens, 13, 14, 15, 16 starters off of last year's team. But they did change defensive coordinators. And Dave Aranda went on. He's head coach at Baylor now. He was a highly thought-of coordinator. The defense wasn't the strength of the team, but it, has, it seems to have slid backwards. Hard to judge. I think, we put, I think we put too much confidence in programs and not enough in players. When you turn over a, staff, when you turn over a roster like that, you got to expect something. The other big game was Clemson really didn't blink with Miami. People thought, I thought, that might be more interesting than it turned out to be. But um, we're kind of missing, missing some other conferences right now. You look at the slate next week, there's one – Massive game, Alabama, Georgia um, on Saturday night. One of the biggest games of the year. Obviously, Georgia beginning to look real serious now. Alabama, 
Alabama had a scare against Ole Miss. That was, that was another thing that happened on Saturday. That was interesting. So, you know, one of the epic games of the year is happening. But otherwise, there's not a single matchup of ranked teams no, on this weekend other than, other than Alabama-Georgia. All right, Ironically, so let's talk of about, course, the two teams I just talked about are playing each other. I didn't even know that LSU and Florida just happened to be playing each other. But, I mean, you know, I, I don't know that that's that important. But it's still an interesting game. You know, I, I don't know what the, you'd expect – Florida to be at least a touchdown favorite, maybe maybe even into double digits favorite on that game. What about on the NFL side of things? Um, lots of things I, I, that caught my eye, but the Chiefs going down was certainly one of them. What do you guys think about what we saw over the weekend? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I thought it was, I mean, especially, I mean, obviously the, the Chiefs defense, you know, has been over the last couple of years, a real kind of remade unit that has been performing at a very high level. And they got, they got pantsed basically by the Las Vegas Raiders there. So I thought that was, that was kind of interesting. I don't know if it's kind of a, a repeatable thing, whether that, that that's something that, you know, the other, other teams can kind of uh, study and learn from. But I, I thought I, I, I was fascinated by that game, basically. Mm-hmm. Let me just throw out a question of ignorance. I didn't get to see too much football this weekend. This uh, loss of the, uh, by KC, defeat by the Raiders, does that move you more on the Raiders or more on the KC? Where, what do, how do you react to the, to the outcome? Are you asking I'm, the Massey Peabody system? You're asking I'm mean, either of you. I mean, what, what, which, which team's ranking moves more? Um, in my opinion, I think it tells me more about the Raiders. Yeah. I think yeah. it tells me that the Raiders are, put this way, better than a mediocre team, which is what I thought they would be this year. Um, they put up, I forget, it was 48, whatever the number of points was. It was 40. They put up 40, 40 against Kansas City. I think it tells me more about I'm upgrading the Raiders more than I'm downgrading the Chiefs. Okay. Yeah, I mean, my, my in my own personal uh, rankings of the teams, it doesn't move KC at all. They remain at number one despite that number loss. One. But okay. I still think it was a pretty impressive uh, victory by uh, uh, Las Vegas. Yeah, I th- and I think Priors alone would tell you you'd move more on Las Vegas than you would on KC. But if you want to know the answer, Massey Peabody moved a little more than a point and a half on Las Vegas, and they dropped KC by a point. Now, that's not just because of that game. It's everything else that happens in the league and past games, but there was a little bit more movement on Las Vegas. Y'all were, y'all were pinging the, hitting the text last night on the, on the Saints as well, not too impressed yeah. with Breeze early on. He got it done in the end. Do we have an update on I'm still not that impressed with Drew Brees, even though, I mean, they did get it done at the end. Though that, that, I feel like the end of that game was more about the Chargers seemingly like aversion to winning his season by over season over season than it is like Brees pulling a victory <laughs> out of nowhere. Be, but how could the Chargers, how is it that there's something endemic to a franchise and all the players change? They change cities for Christ's sake. Yeah. And yep. you're telling me they still have this aversion to the win. No, that's right. That's right. I mean, there's some constants in the universe. The Chargers will lose. The Bengals will tie. You know, <laughs> these, these, these things just happen every year. Can, can I get your opinions or thoughts on the senior citizen quarterback brigade? Um, that every year I wonder, are they going to go get better, get worse? I mean, what's going on? I mean, we talked about Breeze. Um, there's a whole bunch of them still out there doing their thing. Well, let's 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 re- let's reflect for a moment on our model of aging out of the NFL. Yeah. So I think we all believe this now. Maybe we believe it, especially about running backs. But it's not this smooth aging curve where everyone kind of gradually declines at some rate. But rather, that's a mix of people who are steady for a long time and then they drop off the face of the earth. Mm-hmm. And if you mix a bunch of people that look like that, but they drop off at different times, it looks like the smooth decline. That's my revised understanding of longevity in the NFL. And I'm certain that's true about running backs. Is it also true of quarterbacks? And if so, then the whole question is, 
the, it's kind of a death watch question. Mm-hmm. Which quarterback this year, if anybody, is going to drop off? Because, you know, we saw Peyton Manning drop off at the end of his career. Yeah. Great, no, and I mean, honestly. Like he's going to drop off. Breeze feels like. Yeah, Breeze in that first half was reminding me of that last year by Peyton Manning. And he's certainly better than that. I mean, that last Peyton Manning year was truly awful. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I get, you know. Rodgers, I mean, I mean, I, mean I, I, I tend to try, you know, one thing we Brady? can kind of look at a little <laughs> bit is sort of like some of the kind of specific skills that we expect to degenerate. And yeah. I think one thing that worth noting is that Brady, at least this season, I mean, the, the last game was not as good for this, but in general, Brady has actually been doing quite well with deep balls. So his accuracy on kind of long throws, which is a, a skill we do expect to kind of, fall off uh, before others um, seems he, he seems to be kind of holding that together later in his career than Drew Brees is, for example. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think mm-hmm. the, the other thing I've noticed um, let's to me, I go through the quarterbacks. The thing about Brady that I think has fallen off isn't so much his arm strength isn't what it was, but he can still has plenty to go deep. The thing that's bothered me actually, this is even before he was on the Buccaneers. If you pressure Brady up the middle, he's diving on the ground mm-hmm. and yeah. He's, he's lost. He doesn't want to stand in there as much as he used to. And if you get him out of the pocket, there's almost no way he's going to throw the ball on the run. There's just, it's just not, he's just not going to do it. Yeah. And so those are the weaknesses uh, that he has. And, and, and just as a kind of fault, do you think that the, like his kind of situation in Tampa Bay exposes him even more to that in the sense that they, you know, they're kind of a sling it deep sort of team, or it seems that it seems like that's their kind of offensive strategy. And so when he's kind of pressured out of the pocket, he doesn't have those kind of check down sort of like short options that, you know, somebody like James White always filled for the, him in new England. Yeah. I think what you point out is that I don't think necessarily the Buccaneers roster is that built for the check down play. They don't have an, a James White and Alvin Kamara, someone that can take the pressure off or break, you know, th- throw a three yard pass who turns it into 40. That's not the Buccaneers. The Buccaneers have deep receivers, guys that have throw deep middle patterns. That, that's the strength of their offensive part of the team. I agree. A, a quarterback in that the old quarterback brigade that Adi was asking about that we've not named yet is Roethlisberger, and he is mm-hmm. quarterbacking one of the five remaining undefeated teams. I caught a little bit of that game, and I have to say that's a fun team to watch. And I'm curious what y'all think about Roethlisberger's level of play so far this year. No, it, it hurts me because I do not like the Steelers, but they are I, – I have to agree, they are kind of a fun team to watch. That one rookie that caught like four touchdown passes or something like that. How do the Steelers just find these receivers every year? It's really quite amazing. Well, we got, um, we got you know, speaking of that team, we got a fun game this week. Yeah. Cleveland at Pittsburgh. Yeah. Right. You know – no, I've been I've been kind of waiting. I've been one thing I've been eagerly anticipating is kind of basically the the AFC North playing in like the those within division games. Look, the four we still games, haven't seen the Steelers Ravens yet, and four, I, mean, I can't right, wait. Four really interesting games this week. Well, one more just because we're Eagles fans. Ravens at Eagles, Cleveland <laughs> at Pittsburgh, Green Bay at Tampa Bay. And Kansas City at Buffalo all yeah. of a sudden looks like a very mm-hmm. interesting yep. game. You know, so take take pick, take a game and take a winner. We got we got down to about two minutes before we're going to bring a, a last minute guest in here. But pick a game and tell us who you think is going to win. I'll pick those games. Cleveland at Pittsburgh. Uh, Cleveland's good. They're not that good. If I had to pick which one am I most certain about, I'll take Pittsburgh at home over Cleveland. I'll, I'll do a surprising take. I think Tampa Bay beat uh, Tampa Bay beats Green Bay in the Battle of the Bays. 
Oh my gosh, really? Is yep. that really that lopsided? I mean, yeah, I, I mean, I don't think I don't think that's going to be the modal prediction. Yeah. So why? What is the basis for that? Because Green Bay has looked really impressive so far. Yes, they have, and I. But I think you know, a Tampa Bay is playing at home for whatever that's worth this season. I just think that um, I, I think the kind of the Brady's kind of long game, that long sort of passing game. Would, well, it's going to play well against Green Bay. And I think that, uh, you know, Rodgers is going to be kind of a shootout. And I, I kind of, I don't know, for whatever reason, I, I like Tampa Bay in that. By the way, Green Bay's favored by one and a half in that game. Okay. It's well, a little closer all. than okay. I even thought it was. What about the, what is the Ravens-Eagles life line? The Eagles showed some life against the Steelers. They've needed to, you know, there are local boys. We pull for them. Ra- not Ravens minus season. seven and a half. Yeah, seven. And I half. think Wentz is on the road. Wentz, Wentz is still, I think the the like one of the worst rated quarterbacks. No, in the he's league. the worst. I put yeah, yeah, I put it in our rundown. If you look at the QBR ratings according to ESPN, um, Wentz is thirty three out of thirty three. He's literally the last. All right. On the other on the other end, Josh Allen has surprised, and the Bills are one of the few remaining yeah. undefeated teams. Do they have a chance? Can could Casey lose two games in a in a row? Oh yeah, the way Josh Allen's like, Josh Allen looks like an MVP right now. Whether he can maintain that, and whether you know, I mean, I am very intrigued by that game, and I'm intrigued by the game that's happening, I guess, uh, tonight as well, the Bills Titans game, because I think you know the Bills. If any, if you want to still knock Josh Allen at all, it's that you know the the wins that they've had so far have not been against the you know the the toughest teams. But the next couple of weeks will be very telling for them. Do the Bills get the Chiefs in Buffalo, or is that in Kansas City? It's in Buffalo. It's in Buffalo, so it could be that that game is going to be close to a push. What's the line? Well, maybe you don't have the line yet because they haven't played yet this week. Yeah, they, they don't have the line because the Bills okay. haven't played yet this week. They, the Bill, we, we have, the for what it's worth, Massey Peabody has Buffalo right now pre this week's game at seventh in the league at plus 408, 4.08, where Kansas City is only 5.54. So on a neutral field, KC would be about a point and a half, but they're not on a neutral field. Um, it's going to be close to a push, according to Massey Peabody. That's interesting. All right, guys. Fun discussion on football. We have to wrap up this quarter. At the bottom of the hour, we're going to have Karim Kassam, who is a baseball analyst for director of baseball operations for the Twins, to talk about that and his life as an analyst for the Steelers, one of the few guys who's crossed sports. Interesting conversation coming up at the bottom of the hour. Between now and then, we thought we'd talk football with one of our longtime favorite guests, Stephen Godfrey. He not only is a college football writer, but he's a longtime Falcons fan. And so the Falcons as you guys know, axed their two leaders, Dimitrov, their general manager, and Dan Quinn, their head coach. And we thought it'd be fun to get um, Stephen's take on, on that. So we'll wrap up this quarter by welcoming Stephen into the show. So we have Stephen Godfrey joining us now for the rest of the half hour. Stephen, longtime friend of the show, frequent guest, uh, writer at SB Nation for a long time. And now it's Banner Society, the Banner Society. He also hosts a podcast called Podcast Ain't Played Nobody, one of the best college football podcasts around real quickly your twitter handle people are about to hear some wonderful stuff for you if they want more it's yes. at 38 at 38 godfrey at 38 godfrey simple at enough 38 right godfrey. all right steven welcome to the show how are you holding up and by the way congrats on the braves getting a one up on the dodgers that's the source of I've, i know well you know all the atlanta phobia has me completely like just petrified and it really overtakes you to the point where you can't enjoy like good things but i will say this they don't look like an Atlanta team at all. They, they look opportunistic and young and naive. And those are all the traits I've seen in baseball teams that go on successful sudden runs. So 
Let's see how that implodes. It's going to be great. It'll it'll blow up. You know, hearing you complain about Atlanta makes me feel like Atlanta's like the new Buffalo or something. I mean, is it is it gonna is it buying for the worst luck, worst downtrodden fan base in the? I mean, I'm so I'm 39. I've seen one title in my lifetime of the pro. I mean, the, the city only has one title. It was 25 years ago. It was in baseball after the strike season. If you throw, I mean, I'm a Nashville Predators fan because I live in Nashville. So if you throw that in, I've seen one title in my lifetime. The way I look at it is, this is a numbers-based show, right? ROI, not particularly strong in a sports <laughs> fandom. Okay? I'll leave it at that. You, this is right, basically so this is, like, this is bad real estate in Florida in the form of fandom. Got it. Well, listen, the big changes on that front. That's why we want to talk to you. We usually talk college football with you, but being a big Falcons fan, there were some changes, big changes. So they not only fired Quinn, but they fired the general manager, Dimitrov. And I realize, I think folks close to programs, deep fans, you know, they often know more about these, these firings or retentions than people who are just kind of national fans. So I, Falcons, I only consume from a distance. I've always heard right. good things about Dimitrov. He's kind of a darling of the analytics community in some sense. Um, and, you know, they've, they've had some success over the years. So I wanted the insider's take. And, and then what can we learn from this about head coach firings or retentions and general managers firings or retention? Some of the most interesting, controversial, important decisions made in sports. What can we learn about how Blank and the ownership of the Falcons have handled this over the last few years? Well, it's funny to come on because I actually feel not nervous, but a little uneasy. I mean, I've probably done 10,000 radio spots in my life, but I'm a college football reporter. And we were talking about this in the break where I go about a very sober business of trying to pick apart information and develop sources and and report out these things in the most objective and and really kind of brutally honest way possible. And then I have, I have retained this one sort of like cancerous element in my brain of, (laughs) of being as much of a fan as anyone else is of, of the teams in my sport of, of this stupid, stupid sports team. Mm-hmm. And so I, I often spend Saturdays trying to push people to be objective and reasonable and, and tell them, Hey, there are all these elements that you don't know. And then on Sunday I turn into a blithering idiot on Twitter. Um, <laughs> yeah, I guess it keeps me grounded. I don't know. Um, That's right. Need an outlet. Yes. In Atlanta, I think specifically the problem is this. You cannot buy your way to any kind of success in the NFL, especially – and I'm not just talking about with salary caps or, or, or deal structures. What Arthur Blank decided to do back when he bought this franchise, better, the better part of 20 years ago, is that he was going to outfit it in all the, non, all the non-payroll ways that you can to have an advantage, right? Facilities, okay. marketing. Um, again, facilities, facilities, facilities. That was sort of his first and, and biggest thing, right? Community involvement, hiring on marketing firms, rebranding, uh, you know, really giving back to the city of Atlanta. It's, it's got the highest per capita income of African-American, one of the highest per capita incomes of African-Americans in the country. Yep. It became a destination city for, um, for black athletes specifically because of the cultural advantage it had. He recognized all that. Okay. You know, it is this, it's the city too busy to hate. They, they do all of these things. And 20 odd years later, they do not have a world title for, for essentially pure football reasons at this point. I think that's fair to say. It's not a Cleveland situation. It's not a, it's not a San Diego slash Los Angeles situation. This is purely doing everything that you can as an owner, and it's still not yielding the result. Well, Stephen, let me add one other element. I mean, most teams would kill for a quarterback like Matt Ryan, presumably. Mm-hmm. Most teams are in search of their quarterback. They have had their quarterback for a while. Yes, and, and to talk about Dimitrov for a second, I was thinking a little bit about this before I came on. 
the easiest way to gauge the calculus for a GM is that quarterback position. If they drafted or signed or developed the guy and he's, and he is successful, he's top half successful in the NFL, right? You basically consider your GM to be a reasonable human being in the most casual sense. He went out, remember you go back. It was between him and Glenn Dorsey. This is 2007 going into the 2008 draft. It was whether or not they were going to have a franchise defensive tackle, or they're going to take this skinny kid from Boston college from Exeter, Pennsylvania. So he makes the right decision ultimately. And Ryan ends up really being, I, I think the pros pro and a consummate game manager, never always a nine, never a 10, sometimes a six. It, it, and I say that with all the love in my heart for, for dear Matt Ryan, but <laughs> okay. um, this is a franchise that I think actually got so consumed with doing the right and good thing in a cultural sense that it may have actually cost them. And what I mean by that is post Bobby Petrino, post Michael Vick, post bad news kennels, there was an immense amount of vitriol around this franchise. There was a, a bad perception in the league of its relationships with the city. Mm-hmm. And now they, they almost got too touchy-feely, I think, for their own good and really did not make a lot of sober, aggressive assessments in personnel and in coaching. Because, mm-hmm. look, Quinn, Quinn has finished 7-9 and nine in consecutive seasons. And that's a deceptive record, guys, because those both involved basically resurrection Decembers where he was yeah, looking right. at three or four win finishes – Garbage time wins, as as you might call them. Absolutely. And really, if you go and really look at the teams they beat, too, not high-level not high level competition. Since they lost to the Eagles the year following the Super Bowl collapse, I was there, uh, that game against the Eagles, the bad, the, the bad play calling by Steve Sarkeesian, some really bad crony-based hiring with Dan Quinn, all we got was this sort of pablum that he was a player's coach. And, and that rings so false to, I think, the, the rank-and-file fan when you don't see results. Player's coach then is interpreted as lazy or, or, or not disciplined. And right. do, do, you, do you think the – I mean, because, you know, Matt Ryan was a, was a 10 out of 10 in at least one season, his MVP season, obviously. Yes. Um, do you think that was more – in retrospect, do you kind of feel like that was more about Kyle Shanahan and his offense than it was Dan Quinn and his leadership, I guess? I think it's fair to say now looking at the state of the 49ers, looking at the state of the Falcons, and also, look, it was not – this was this, this got out in public last year that he got to choose Dirk Cutter. And I think Dirk Cutter really is the dagger that killed 2020 and, and wow. a lot of 2019. I think Kyle Shanahan – was not a well-loved individual in the Atlanta organization because of his disposition and his attitude. He was, however, the single most effective assistant coach in the Dan Quinn era, right? They go to the Super Bowl because of that offense, flat out. There's no – I mean, the defense was – it was middling at best. And, of course, that's what, you know, ends up causing them to lose the Super Bowl in the way in which they did. I don't think that they encouraged the friction needed – to combat ideas and, and create a consensus in the NFL. You, you need that aggression. Super interesting. Super interesting. I appreciate that take. It's helpful. This um, exactly what we're looking for, Stephen, a little insight into the Falcons because we just kind of consume them from a distance. Listen, thank you for jumping in here last minute. Good luck to you and the work that you do. You guys can follow Stephen Godfrey at 38 Godfrey on Twitter. One of the best follows out there, usually covering college football. Thank you for letting us drag you into NFL. Sure, Cade. I'll come back and we can uh, fix Texas. Sounds good. Thanks, man. Let's do that. Let's do that. All right. That uh, is the end of our third quarter. We still have a quarter to go. We're going to talk to Karim Kassam. He is director of baseball operations, baseball research for the Minnesota Twins. Prior to that, 
he was with the Pittsburgh Steelers as their analyst. So he's got this enviable position, enviable position of being inside the building in two very different sports. We have half, a, half an hour with Karim to wrap up the show. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball Virtual Edition. Of course, rolling into the fourth quarter, I have a guest. Delighted to have Karim Kassam join us. Karim is Director of Baseball Research with the Minnesota Twins. He is more than that. We're about to find out what else he is because he's been in our lives for a while. But delighted to have you on the show. Karim, welcome. Thank you. Uh, Thanks for having me here. Absolutely. So, uh, Cade and Eric here in this half hour, we might have Audie roll in. We might have Shane roll in. Everybody wants to talk to you, but everybody has got some other things going on. First, let's hear a little bit about your background because you're only recently, not only to the Twins, but only recently to Major League Baseball. You've had at least two interesting jobs that I know about before you got here and surely more. But can you tell us, well, one, let's just say you were the football analyst for the Pittsburgh Steelers for a number of years. And um, it was a pretty short transition from there to baseball. And before that, you were an academic. You did your PhD at Harvard with the very well-known Dan Gilbert. You were on tenure track at Carnegie Mellon in one of the best decision-making units in the world. And you walked away from that for a chance to work with the Steelers. Tell us a little bit about this journey. How did you go? Why, why take the job for the Steelers in the first place? And then what about this transition from football to baseball? I, I, you know, I think the transition to the Steelers uh, was probably an easy one. Um, when you grow up um, like I did as a nerd in the, the 90s and 2000s, you never realized these, these jobs in sports would, would eventually open up for people like me. Um, mm-hmm. And then, so, so when it did, it was, it was kind of, it wasn't too hard to jump on, jump, jump on the opportunity. It certainly missed some aspects of, of academia, um, but uh, appreciate all, everything that, that sports has to offer. Karim, what's the connection between you were at Carnegie Mellon right there in Pittsburgh and the Steelers job came up? So that must not have been coincidental. Like what, why, what, what about your proximity to the Steelers facilitated that transition? So it, I think the location maybe was coincidental. Um, it, it certainly helped. So uh, while I was at Carnegie Mellon, I was consulting with the Jacksonville Jaguars. Um, so uh, Daniel Adler, who I knew from graduate school, was, uh, was hired to be their analyst when the Kahn family took over. And so I was doing some consulting with them. And the, the last time I visited Jacksonville to, to help with those guys, uh, Daniel asked me if I was interested in movie analytics. He knew some people that were putting together a group. Um, and my answer was sort of, you know, sure, or like, uh, send them my email. I'm happy to talk to anyone. Uh, and so I talked to these people. It was legendary entertainment. They big, make big movies, Dark Knight, Inception. And the CEO of the company at the time, Thomas Tull, uh, is an investor or a minority owner in the Steelers. Okay. So we started talking about movie analytics. Then we started talking about sports analytics. I've always, you know, been more of a sports person than a movie person growing up. And, uh, I guess also randomly, I grew up a Steelers fan in the 90s growing up in Northern Ontario. So um, it was kind of like everything came together there. Okay, hold on. You grew up in Northern Ontario? That's something I didn't know. That's yeah, Southern Ontario. So hockey, hockey was my, my first love. Okay. Um, are, is, is this football and baseball, are these just sojourns on the way to hockey career? Is that really what you're <laughs> setting yourself up for here? I, I think I feel like I'm doing a little bit of the reverse Paul de Podesta and, and, and moving from, from football to baseball. I don't, I don't think I have a, uh, another sport in me. I'm not sure. 
So before we dive deeper into the sports, give me a sense of what it is about your academic training that led you to this, because it's not obvious studying social psychology. It's not obvious how that qualifies you or prepares you to do analytics for the Jaguars or a company that makes movies like Inception or the Pittsburgh Steelers, now the Minnesota Twins. What is it about the academic training you got that makes you a good analyst for these organizations? I think there is a, there's a, a bunch of things in academia that has to offer. Um, one, it's where I learned statistics. Um, so I trained before that in uh, some computer science um, and electrical engineering. So I had some probability theory and had done some machine learning stuff much earlier, but um, really learning about statistics. I learned in, in graduate school uh, from the psychology department at Harvard, also from economists that were around there um, and the very good statisticians that are around Carnegie Mellon as well. So uh, a lot of that came. And then there's, there's a lot in academia about, you know, learning what is a good research question, how to pose a question, how to get an answer. Um, there's a really high bar for that in academia. I, I joke with my wife that academia is the only place where, where you can say in a meeting, um, that's a good question. Let me get back to you in 18 months. You know, I think <laughs> academia really skews to like, let's be super rigorous and yeah. we'll take, you know, we're going to cross off everything and that's not possible in any of the industries that I've worked in, but, yeah. but seeing that rigor and, and seeing what that takes is super helpful. Um, and the last thing I'd say is that academia does, uh, takes mentorship and, and, and training really seriously. And I think that mm. that helps a ton in, in whatever industry you're working in. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So Karim, how do you think about, um, the role of that trade-off between, as you said, the, you know, because I spent five years working with the Eagles, so pr- maybe similar time to when you were working with the Steelers, and we always had to trade off, like, we can get that last 10% right, or we can realize that, you know, the draft is next week, we actually have free agency periods about to start, so how do you actually think about making those trade-offs, and how do you sell them within the organization? I don't know if I have a, a pithy answer to it, um, what, what I would say is that the, the, I think the cases like the draft are more a minority. So the draft is one where like there's a point at which we need to make a decision and we're going to have to have all our models tuned optimally at that point. You know, we're overfitting, underfitting. We want to we want to toe that line. We want to be right there and, and have the best point estimate, the best distribution estimates, everything we have at that moment. More often than not, we're kind of in that continual phase. We might do a project for player development. It it can help player development, but we're going to build on that um, in six months or a year. And a lot of what what I focus on with the Twins is making sure we're getting better at that over time. So we don't have to cross off everything and be 100% correct, but some of the, uh, especially the the steps that go into that final model, um, when you're doing the feature engineering, when you're selecting variables, the exploration, we want to be super rigorous with all of those things because that helps us not only for this iteration, but it's, it's going to help us in the next iteration as we go down the line. Let me make sure, let me, let me try to recapture this. I'm going to oversimplify it, but I think what you just said is we want to be super rigorous in our approach because it's going to be iterative and we're going to build on it over time. But we have to recognize that it's almost always going to be inconclusive and we have to make decisions at every point along the way and we have to accept that. But that, again, back to the first point, it doesn't allow you to be slippery or cut corners. In fact, it might even argue for really make rigorous all along. It's going to be iterative. We're going to improve it next year, but we're going to have to make decisions on inconclusive evidence along the way. Is that one way of summarizing? I, th- I, th- I think that's fair. And, and really, because we, 
you know, in some ways, we do have to cut corners relative to academia. If someone asked me to look into something, I can't take what it would take to, you know, publish a paper and deal with all the reviewers and all of but, that. But Krim, but Krim, cut corners has a negative connotation. I'm not hearing you say cut corners. I'm hearing you say we're going to have to pull the trigger on something before an academic would pull the trigger. But we're not going to do anything. You're, you, one of the virtues of your training is that you know when something's like solid or not. And you're willing to make a decision before you have conclusive evidence, but you're also, I'm guessing, not willing to do shoddy work or to truly cut corners, right? Uh, yeah, I, I like that. Pull, pull, pull the trigger is a better way to phrase it than cut corners. And, and a lot of time, we want to make sure that we're not making, you know, the big mistakes as we get there. Like, that's the number one thing. And, and after that, if, um, you know, our... Our solution is a 55% guess when otherwise we'd be flipping a coin, then we'll move forward with that 55 rather than move to 60, 65, 70, whatever, like that top end might be. If we spent longer, yep. at some point we have to pull the trigger and say like, this is better than what we have now. Yep. Yeah. So Krim, your, your last point actually is a perfect segue to what my question was going to be, which is at least the many times I've worked in industry, people get understand the concept of prediction, but they don't understand the concept of uncertainty that well. Like they say, so Karim, what's the answer? And you're like, well, what do you mean? I mean, 60% it's this, 40%. I mean, how do you get people within the twins organization or just more generally, whether it's when you were the Steelers, to get the understanding that you're never going to have perfect certainty. And you even mentioned the term distribution. Things have distributions. Things don't have answers like that. Is that something like this way? Would you ever put in front of decision makers and managers, like, here's a histogram of the probabilistic outcomes, and this is the range of outcomes, and this is the most likely one in my guess, but, I mean, or is that just fantasy land? Oh, absolutely. No, we, we do that. We'll put, we'll put distributions in, in front of people when we're, um, if we're evaluating pro players that we're thinking about in terms of a trade, if we're evaluating amateur players, we, we have some of those distributions. Depends on the audience who you're talking to, you know, the, the degree you get into that. Um, certainly it's more common in, in baseball today than it is in, in football today. I think just sort of like the nature of analytics and how long it's been around and how long people have been used to seeing these concepts is a big part of it, but we, we, we do get into that. So uh, one community we've left out of this academia versus industry continuum we're talking about is media. And I'm curious, especially as you left the football community, I, I kind of feel like the best research, quote, research being done in football analytics right now is done by people at 538 and, um, you know, ESPN. That, that what do academics really have? There's not, there aren't many problems that need the deeper academic answer. And if you look at what Brian Burke is doing or Josh Hermsmeyer, those guys are like, that's like real-time, legitimate, solid stuff. And I'm, I'm curious what your perspective is, having been on the inside of one of these teams. Does it feel that way? Is that a fair characterization? Yeah, I, I think, you know, the, those guys that you mentioned, um, Brian Burke, Seth Walder at ESPN, Josh Hermsmeyer at 538. I follow their work. I think they're doing, they're doing great things. And the, the data has become available to them now. So like the, just the, the tracking data, uh, which sort of came online just as I was leaving football or, you know, in, in, in my transition period, more and more stuff is happening there. Um, Michael Lopez, you know, friend of yours as well, what he's done with the Big Data Bowl. It's, it's amazing what's, what's happening there. Um, and yeah, some of those people, Michael Lopez obviously has an academic background as well, but it it's, it's not necessary. It's the first time people are seeing a lot of this data. And there, there are a lot of, I think, interesting questions that are being answered in the public sphere. Well, well given, given that, um, 
and maybe we can use this as a move as a last question on football before we move, but what do you think it takes to succeed as a team on the analytics front in football these days? So, you know, Seth, you just mentioned Seth Walther. Seth's been doing the survey of all the analysts in the league. And he shows, I think that 31 out of 32 teams have somebody that considers themselves analytics. The average might be two or three. Some teams have five, six. Um, You were one of a smaller group there, but you've had, you had years of experience and you were in a division with a couple of the real analytics powerhouses. What do you think a team needs to succeed to, to get an edge, I, say, I guess is what it comes down to, to get an edge through analytics in the NFL these days? I, I, you know, I think of like what I, I, I'm thinking of it a little bit in terms of what an individual needs to succeed in football as an analyst and, and probably okay. like what the analyst team is, is, is pretty similar. Um, you need the statistical know-how. Um, you need some, what I would say, maybe engineering savvy, just being able to get to answers quickly, knowing where stuff is, being able to deploy stuff at some point, like being able to rapidly iterate, whether you're, you know, independent of whether you're a good statistician matters a lot. Um, the domain knowledge matters. I, and, and the domain knowledge plays into probably what that last factor I would say is for an individual is the communication. And the communication is, is huge, right? Like at the end of the day, football or baseball, I am not on the field. So whatever I do, it's, it's not going to be, it's, it's not going to affect play. It's, it's going to go filtered through me, through whatever report, through coaches, whether it's directly to players or to coaches, whatever it is, that communication bit is, is, is critically important. Mm-hmm. The rumors are always that it's much easier to do analytics in baseball, not just because of the, let's call it at least historically, Karim, as you said, the availability of data, but there's so many interactions in football, you know, how the right guard does depends on how the right tackle does. And so, but in baseball, it's you, the pitcher, you know, where the fielder's location, is that lore true at all? Is it easier in quotes, whatever that means to do analytics for baseball than it is for football? Uh I, I don't know if it's easier. It's certainly different. There, data science across industries, academia, no matter where you are, the, the lack of data is always going to be one of the, the bottlenecks for you. And, and that becomes acute pretty quickly in football. So that, that is an issue. Whereas in baseball, there are 10 times as many games. It's easier to isolate the people, um, probably have better data uh, for at the NCAA level, at least. Um, Whereas in football, like if, I, if I'm doing an amateur draft model for football and I want to look at a cornerback, um, I have great measurements uh, for their athletic ability from the combine, but maybe they don't get targeted. And if they get, don't get targeted, I don't know if it's because they were great or because the guy on the other side isn't very good. There's, there's so many other things there. So the lack of data certainly hurts in, in football. But I'd say in baseball, like when you have more data and you, you're doing more sophisticated things, um, I come back to this John Tukey quote all the time. He has something like, you know, the, the, the tool that's so dull that you cannot, uh, that you can't cut with it is, is sort of not sharp enough to be useful. And, and we just use more sophisticated tools and like those get complicated as well. Um, we're, we're looking to model entire distributions and not just means. So there, there are a lot of challenges that come up with having more data and deeper data. We start seeing com- compute to be a bottleneck as much as sort of the amount of data. And so there are, there are new problems that arise, I think, when, when you solve some of those as well. We're talking to Karim Kassam. Karim is the director of baseball research with the Minnesota Twins. He's about a year into that job after many years as the analyst with the Pittsburgh Steelers. And before that, tenure track faculty in uh, one of the best decision-making units in the world at Carnegie Mellon. Karim, we're talking about baseball I would think that one of the toughest things about baseball is that so many other teams are so sophisticated. 
So, you know, you're, if, you're, if you're on the cutting edge in football, that's going to be a ready edge for you. But in baseball, man, it looks like so many people are doing things. How do you get an edge in baseball? And related, what makes the Tampa Bay Devil Rays so special? People talk about them as being so analytics forward. I'm curious. I hear that all the time, but I don't know what it means. So a couple, a couple of related questions there. How do you – I would think that would be almost daunting to try to get an edge in baseball when everybody else is – you know, the, the Yankees are throwing around, I don't know, 25 or 30 people in their analytics shop. The Dodgers have something similar. Yeah, I, it, it seems like in analytics in any of these industries that are, you know, that are, that are pretty competitive in some ways, like championships are a zero-sum game. So it, it, you're, you're just like, you're, you're fighting these other teams. And with, with analytics, um, it feels as though the, the teams that succeed, they invest early or they invest heavily, right? So um, LA, the Dodgers and the Yankees caught up by, by hiring these big teams. Tampa has been just doing it for a long time and, and they, they operate differently than other teams. Like certainly like they, they have this depth in pitching right now. They have these depth in hitters. A lot of them aren't on expensive contracts. Um, it is intimidating to look at, look like to, to look at it and see what, what they're able to do. But, but certainly that's where we're, we're shooting to be one of these teams to be one of these super teams. Um, so yeah, it's it's my job in the end to sort of help find those players as well, uh, and it's something that we're I think we make good progress towards, and, and we're we're still on that path. Let me, let me ask a related question. I I know the NFL reasonably well enough to say something about how the sophistication of ownership and the quality of ownership, as I want to judge it, varies across the league, and it varies pretty dramatically. To what extent does it vary that much in baseball, and to what extent is that a factor? here so great you've got analytics folks spread all over the league but you might not have the kind of commitment and from ownership in the same way spread across the league is that is that a potential advantage if a team has an owner that is as bought in as as uh, as as you really need to to make a difference so ownership wise a little bit above my pay grade i i don't know uh, a lot of the owners I, I will say that like you know, having that alignment throughout the organization, which I think is something that, that uh, uh, between Jim Polad and Derek Falvey and Thad Levine, I think has done, they've done an incredible job uh, with the twins that we know that we're, we're looking for all the same things that these lines of communication are open, that, that the folks in player development are asking, like, give us more numbers, give us more guidance, like, you know, whatever else that you can tell us about how to develop a particular player. We want as much information as possible. Uh, the fact that across our organization, we have attitudes like that, I think puts us in a great position to succeed. I don't know if all organizations in baseball are like that. One of the things of like starting in baseball in this weird year is that I, I haven't connected with, um, you know, people from, from other teams as much as I, I might have. And I don't have that picture. Um, but I can say it's something that like, uh, is really well done uh, at the Minnesota Twins. Could you talk, Karim, could you talk to us a little bit about, without necessarily specific projects, what's the balance between what I'll call off-field versus on-field things that you think about? Because when most general fans think about analytics and baseball, they think, oh, the shift, you know, they think about things that are happening, you know, oh, you should steal here, you should, you know, bunt here, um, you should bring in this reliever here. How much of the balance of what you do is kind of, let's call it off-field, meaning drafting, you know, maybe player valuation, et cetera, and how much of it is, you know, once the game starts kind of stuff? So as as an organization, as a research organization, yeah. we, we cover all of, like, I think we touch all aspects of baseball operations. So we, we have a team of people that are working on advanced scouting that, that play into like 
how should we pitch this person? How should we defend this person? Um, what are our best matchups out of the bullpen? When should we have people warming up, et cetera? Um, we'd certainly have a, a domestic draft, um, amateur draft. We're, we're looking at international amateur space, player development. Uh, we're working in the sports performance space. We work with our doctors. So we're, we're, we are involved in all of that. Um, in terms of the exact balance, it's, it's sort of tough to quantify, but we're, we're trying to integrate and use information across the board to help our, inform our decisions. Maybe, maybe one more question that tries to tie together the academic background you talked to Kate about and your current job. Obviously, anyone with a degree in psychology, especially from um, Harvard psych, has to be thinking about experimentation. You know, that has to be, in fact, that's in the lexicon of all of us. How do we get randomization? How do we kind of get causation instead of correlation? Do you guys run experiments at the Twins and how, or even thinking of your days at the Steelers, the Twins, et cetera, do you run experiments and how does that affect how you think about, let's call it better data as opposed to just the data you could get? Say it's, it's not typical to, to run like true experiments in, in an academic sense. Certainly like we get natural experiments all the time. This year is going to be a, a, a funny one where, you know, what happens with aging curves and development when one year is taken out so we can, we can exploit some of that. Um, other places, like certainly at Duolingo, where you have millions of daily users, it's experiments all over the place, and, and their experimental sophistication is, is, is pretty amazing. But in, in sports, you know, at the end of the day, it's like, it's, it's people, it's, uh, it's tough to experiment, and, and it's high stakes always, so you're usually taking your best guess. But in baseball, you've got minor leagues, so it, I know there's, there's still serious stakes, and you've got major development considerations, and everyone's got their private incentives, but at least in theory you've got a sandbox of sorts, an organization does, they could run experiments of different kinds, whether it's, you know, what you do with your pitching rotation or how you match pitchers against batters or whatever it might be. Are you familiar with teams doing, using their minor leagues in that way much at all? So certainly that, so the story is that, you know, the Astros start out that way, piggybacking their starters, getting people used to coming in and, and, uh, pitching a lot of innings out of the bullpen, that type of thing. Um, there's certainly things that we do in the minor leagues that we don't do at the major league level. I guess it's, it's you know, we're not randomizing or anything like that, but, but we are informing ourselves from, from some of those decisions. That, that, that reminds me of another um, idea that's floating around right now. I'm curious if you agree with it, that the younger players are so much more accustomed to analytics that there's more demand. It's not even something you have to impose on them. It's not even so much top down anymore. But one of the reasons the league is changing is that guys have, having grown up with this technology, not only are open to it, but not, might even be seeking it out more than previous generations of players did. Is that true? I, I yeah, again, I haven't talked to players directly that, that much. Um, the coaches coming in, certainly they have that attitude and, and we bring in, okay. you know, we, we have a lot of new coaches in our organization coming from the college ranks and they're used to seeing numbers. The first time I visited twin, the twins, um, just impressed with like how people were talking about catcher framing metrics or whatever it is, these advanced numbers. And it, there is, uh, there is a sense in what coaches are, are very comfortable talking about a lot of these numbers. They're looking for the best ones it's constantly changing environment of, you know, what are the numbers we're looking at? How should we calculate on the best? What's new, et cetera. So it's hard for everyone to keep up with, but there is a, there's a big appetite for it. Karim, you've made a couple references to very important context we haven't talked about, but what can you tell us about what life has been like for you? You, you make this move, you're excited. It's your very beginning of your time with the twins and then COVID hits. And now you're 
I mean, we, this happens some with our students. So they graduate and they go to start a job at Amazon or whatever. And they're like, how am I supposed to get to know people? How am I supposed to build my network? How am I supposed to whatever? But I don't even get to go in the office. So what has it been like for you as an analyst with the professional team, especially a new job and a new sport for crying out loud? How have you navigated that in this COVID-19 world where you're not able to be in the building? Yeah, absolutely. There's been there's been some challenges that way. And for me at the Steelers, one of the nice things, I, I think one of the, the key things that helped me be successful is that I ended up in the draft room. I didn't have a separate office and I was just surrounded by scouts every day watching film by, with scouts. And as a learning experience, like while I'm at my computer typing to have that and, and always be exposed to it, I uh, just learned a lot about football in a very short amount of time. And that's been tough this year. Um, the Twins have, you know, we've done some things where been able to watch some games with minor league coaches, major league staff, and have some of those experiences and try to make up for it. But it hasn't been the same. Other thing, you know, for, for me, I started in January. So I was in Minneapolis in January um, in Fort Myers for a spring training facility in February and March and, and came back to Pittsburgh ready to move uh, when things got locked down. We ended up canceling movers and, and stayed here. Okay. Um, Having, having those two months in person with people, I think, was yeah. really critical. One of the things right. was you, you, you lose a little bit of that get to know you. It's, it's easy to overestimate how much you can read into people. Um, so having that couple of months with people in, in person to form those connections, um, yeah, without it, I think I would have been in real trouble. But certainly some challenges either way. Okay, but, 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 but give us one example. Because you are so, you've had a successful example in history of building relationships with scouting staff and team personnel. So you know how important it is and you're capable of doing it. And then you get put into this situation and you have two months of like in-person and then you're estranged. So what, what is, give us an example because this is so relevant to so many people's lives. Give us an example of one thing you've done to build relationship or to build trust because it's so vital to your job and it's so challenging right now. Give us one example of a creative way you've done that in the last, it sounds like six months, six, seven months now. Yeah, I don't know if I have any creative ways. I've sort of like the the you know the, the boring ways that are still effective. That I I will send a, a Slack message to a coach after the season and say like, hey, do you want to catch up? Do you want to get to know? Like, can we do a get to know you? I know I saw you at spring training. We haven't talked since. You know, mm-hmm. whether that's strength and conditioning or one of the position coaches or or whatever it is. Um, having that connection, I think, is is really important. It's mm-hmm. You can, with Zoom and Outlook and Slack, all these things, I think you can have a lot of these interactions that are planned. It's really easy to do. And what you lose out of COVID is some of that serendipity, some of that walk down the hallway, that type of thing. I don't know if there's like a great way to recreate it. Um, Making sure that some of those people that you would have seen in the office, you're trying to do that a little bit um, while we're remote, I think has been, has been super helpful. Um, but yeah, I, I don't think I have a great solution. If, if you guys have better, if you have creative solutions, well, I'm all it, ears. It strikes me that it, the, the creativity is not so much important as the doing it, you know, and one th- it, it's, I'm guessing like how, what importance do you put on that right now versus like modeling? And they're both important. But it would be easy for an analyst to kind of take the shelter of the COVID-19 and just settle into numbers and not worry about that kind of stuff. And I'm guessing that you're doing more of those things because of your experience previously and you realize how important that is. And so you're allocating some time that you could be modeling to relationship building. I'm just guessing. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, for sure. So, Krim, we need to wind up, but um, I know that you guys are expanding your staff. We're talking about trying to keep up with people like the Yankees with dozens of people. What's going on with staff there, and, and, and what do people need to know? 
Yeah, absolutely. So we, we want to be the best, the best analytic team in, in all of sports. We have some work to get there. Um, I think we have a lot of the ingredients. Uh, like I mentioned, ownership and leadership are, are willing to invest in us, and we have this collaborative environment. Um, our interns fellows from the last year had impact on, on our player plans this year. Like it, it happens pretty quickly. So we, we have that, we have this, we're trying to bring in some of that academic focus on mentorship and training. Um, and we're, we're looking for world-class talent now. So if you are a senior this year or like a graduating grad student, uh, definitely um, look us up. You can, you can find me on Twitter. You can, you can find Minnesota Twins job postings. Um, if you're a young data scientist that's passionate about baseball, definitely be in touch. If it's not you this year and it's a future year, uh, come join us. We're looking to, you know, grow our group and, and continue on some of the successes that we've had. Great to hear. That's exciting. Krim, before you go, give us your Twitter handle. Uh, it's Professor Mullet. <laughs> Professor yeah. what? Professor Mullet. I, I had a mullet at Carnegie Mellon for a short <laughs> period of time. Gracious. All right. Karim Kassam, thank you for the time. Very much appreciate that. That was Karim Kassam. He is the director of baseball research for the Minnesota Twins, former football analyst for the Pittsburgh Steelers. And before that, psychology professor at, the, at, uh, at Carnegie Mellon. Karim, thank you. Enjoyed that. That has been another Wharton Moneyball two hours of sports analytics. We do it every week. We will do it again next week for the whole team. Eric Bradlow, Adi Weiner, Shane Jensen. This has been Cade Massey for Matty D, boss man Matty D, Dion Simpkins. Associate producer, appreciate y'all being here. Come back and join us again next week. Between now and then, enjoy your sports.